Thank you for listening to the Faith Free Lutheran Sermon Archive. Today's sermon, for the third Sunday in Lent, is preached by Pastor Jason Goodham. If you have questions about today's sermon, please call the church office at 612-824-5527 or visit our website, faithlutheran-aflc.org. Now let's join in and hear what God has to say to us today. Good morning again. Special welcome to those of you who are visiting us this morning. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I would at this time invite you to stand as I read the psalm appointed for this Sunday. The sermon text is taken from Psalm 95 verses 1 through 9. can be found on page 933 in your pew Bible if you'd like to follow along. Reading in Jesus' name, Psalm 95, verses 1 through 9. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as as at Meribah on the day at Massah in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. Heavenly Father, these are your words, and your word is truth. We pray that this morning you would sanctify us in the truth, that you would convict us of sin in our lives where that is necessary, and that you comfort and encourage us with the promises of your gospel. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Who is the most famous person you know? Throughout the years, uh, I've met a couple fairly well-known celebrities, mostly has to do in the world of sports, because that's what my life is. I've had uh, a handful of extended conversations with Hall of Famer Tony Oliva. I once sold a uh, computer to late Timberwolves head coach Flip Saunders. Uh, I've had the good fortune of, because of my podcast, I've met recording artist Flame. Uh, That's about it for me. I, I don't know that many famous people. But here's a more interesting question, one that doesn't get asked as often. Who is the most famous person who knows you? Who is the most well-known person that if they see you walking down the street would go out of their way to greet you and hug you and and receive you joyfully? Who might that be? When I thought about that question this week, I was reminded that as far as life goes, I am one of the more anonymous and insignificant people that has ever lived. I don't think uh, too many important people know who I am. And and for those of you who work on campus and at headquarters, I I legitimately think the most famous person who knows me is Pastor Micah Germstead, president of the AFLC. I, I don't think I go any higher up the ladder than that. Okay? But, but, In our fame-starved and detention-starved society, sometimes it's considered not a good thing to achieve notoriety. Sometimes people go out of the way to be famous. Sometimes uh, in society we produce people who are famous for being famous. 
They've literally contributed nothing else than the fact that they're famous. Most, maybe probably most well-known among those people is Kim Kardashian, who, who's done nothing except to be famous her entire life. But interestingly enough, David, our psalmist for this morning, asks a similar question, considers a similar topic. Who knows you? But he does so in a way that causes us to pause and marvel that in reality, the most well-known person who knows you is God. Now, we know David wrote Psalm 95 because Hebrews gives it credit, gives him credit for him. And so this morning, David gives us both the opportunity to consider and inspect ourselves because there's a warning involved in what it means to know God. And so turning our eyes back to Psalm 95, we take a look at both the wonder and warning of knowing the God of the universe. First, the wonder. Familiarity with God is a good thing. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. It's, it's even a, a startling thing. Consider just in this psalm, what David admits about God. He's a great God. He's a great king above all gods. And unless you're a little too immersed in the Marvel universe, this is an unbelievable starting point that we would know God. That we would know the great God. That we would know the God who rules over all other gods. And what are God's credentials? In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. I have a pastor friend who likes to sum it in this way. God is the God who breathe stars, who speaks them into existence. And we know him. Have you ever paused to consider the wonder that is, the glorious reality that you personally know the God of the universe? David describes him as the Lord our maker, our God. The, the personal nature of how we know God is absolutely remarkable and astounding. It's even unexpected when you consider the gods of all the other nations who are completely unknowable, first and foremost, because they don't exist. But even in their human conception, the, the people who worshipped the other gods could not hope to speak to them. Those gods had to choose to come in their life, and they were often petty and cruel, but not our God. Our God is knowable. Our God comes to us. Our God desires to be known by us. And it's a wonderful and remarkable thing. And it's a shame, too, because we take it for granted. And that leads us to the other reality about knowing God, the warning. The warning not to harden your heart. 
David continues, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. David recalls for us the ugly history of the Israelites after the Exodus at Massah and Meribah. Stop and consider the flow of the Old Testament lesson this morning. We are two chapters removed from the Israelites walking through the Red Sea on dry ground, from God delivering the Israelites once and for all from four centuries plus of slavery to Egypt. And the Israelites did it without raising a sword. They did it without one single battle. God, in all his power and all his glory, parted the Red Sea and delivered the Israelites. And almost literally the first thing they did was complain and grumble and say, Oh, woe is me. And long for the meat pots of slavery where there were onions and leeks. Can you imagine the brashness of the Israelites turning their backs on God so quickly? And the answer to that rhetorical question is yes. Yes, you can. Because that same brashness flows in our veins. That same rejection and hardness consumes our hearts. That God, in all his goodness, and all his glory, and all his magnificence to be known by us, would stand there as we not only reject him, but we turn our back on him. You see, the image from the children's sermon of missing the mark That applies more fully than we can imagine. Not only do we come up imperfect, not only do we miss the mark and overshoot the target or miss it to the side or miss it underneath, but in God's standard of perfection, if we were to miss the bullseye by one molecule, we would fail to measure up to his standard of perfection. But that's not the reality of our sin. That's not the situation of our sin. Because when God gives us the rubber band, we don't shoot for the target. Hardly ever. We turn around and shoot someone else. Or we shoot into the crowd. Or in a moment of all idiocy, we take the rubber band and whack ourselves in the face with it. That's the nature of our sin, that we're constantly and continually thumbing our nose at the God of the universe saying, we don't need you. We know better than that. And we harden our ears. And we stop our hearts. And we realize that we're no better than the Israelites in the Old Testament. Just let the gravity of this situation sink in for even a moment. We know the God of the universe, the maker of all who there, who, all there is, and the God who breathes stars, 
And then, when we don't get our way, when he fails to meet our very selfish expectations, we turn our backs on him. We reject him. Not only do we reject him, but we try to replace him. And we try to replace him with something or someone who is vastly, infinitely more inferior than he is. Because in the end, we try to replace him with ourselves. It is stunning, absolutely stunning, that we are able to know the God of the universe. In the history of humanity, in the history of human religion, there is no other God like our God. But it is even more stunning that in knowing the God of the universe and having access to the God of the universe, we would turn our backs on him. We would reject him. We would shun him. We would harden our hearts and replace him. But even this is not the most stunning thing David talks about in Psalm 95. The most stunning thing is that God still cares for us. The very first reality David teaches us about God this morning is the most foundational and fundamental thing we can know about God. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. The God of the universe... The God whom we have rejected is the rock of our salvation. At this point, we would do well to remember what it means to confess that God has saved us. Yes, God has saved us from our sin. This is the easy Sunday school answer. But beyond that, and a little bit more uncomfortable, is the reality that God has saved us from ourselves, that we are consumed with sin to the point that we choose sin over God every single time. But the most uncomfortable reality of our salvation is that God has saved us from himself. God doesn't like sin. He doesn't like our sin. He doesn't like our rebellion. The end of Psalm 95 reminds us that God loathed the Israelites for their rebellion. He loathed them. And then he reminds us of his wrath. That is the end result. Loathing and wrath for those who would not repent. But for those who turn and return to God, we get to call him the rock of our salvation. And we should be left every single Sunday morning asking why. Why would we receive such a great privilege? Why would God do that for us? Is it because of our great wisdom in discovering who God really is? Absolutely not. Our wisdom leaves us hardening our hearts and rejecting God's grace and rejecting his mercy and rejecting his favor. Is it because of the sincerity and effort we spend on repenting? As much as we want to say yes to that, the answer is still no, because hard hearts don't repent. They don't even know they need to repent. Why is it then 
that we not only can, but do know God and know Him as the rock of our salvation. We get the answer right in the middle of Psalm 95. We are His people, the people of His pasture, the sheep of His hand. There are two glorious realities contained in this simple phrase. First, sheep need a shepherd. In the Old Testament, God regularly compares himself to a shepherd. But those comparisons find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ, who is the good shepherd. But second, David tells us that the shepherd needs a hand. And this is where we see Jesus, literally and physically, the God who has hands, the God whose hands were pierced for our sins, the God whose hands were nailed to a cross, and the God whose hands will embrace us for all eternity. This is the truth that David is communicating to us this morning. All of the kindness, all of the grace, all of the mercy, all of the love of God, all of that is made tangible and real in the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Shepherd. Everything good that God gives us and every promise he makes to us is rooted in the reality of Jesus Christ. We do not need to fear our sin because Jesus has been paid for and it has been washed clean in his own blood. We do not need to fear the wrath of God. It has been poured out on Jesus instead of on us. And whenever we would tremble and worry that God may have abandoned us or is waiting to smite us because of our stubbornness or shame or sin or whatever it might be, God in that moment meets you with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ whom he sent to you in truth and in reality, and in history. And so rather than running from him, we are invited, we are commanded to turn to him, to run to him, to celebrate with him. And each week as the church gathers together, we celebrate with God by singing songs and joyful noises that we know him. But we celebrate even more than that, that God knows us. And in spite of that, he has redeemed us. He has forgiven us. And he has saved us. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.